Well, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Rochester at Trinity Presbyterian Church. We pray for you on a regular basis, and I know that you are praying for us on a regular basis as well. So the Lord knits our hearts together in prayer for one another. I'm glad to be able to have the chance to be with you, and even more importantly, I'm glad that John had the opportunity of being with the people at Trinity because I just really appreciate John. And can I tell you something that you already know? You have a great pastor. Uh, He is a good friend of mine. He is someone that I've really come to admire. Uh, He is a man who loves the Lord dearly, is humble, and yet is wise and ready to lead where that is needed. And he's been doing that in our presbytery and uh, even as he has helped our church and ministerial welfare committee of our presbytery to be looking after pastors and churches. He's been sharing his pastoral heart with the entire presbytery, and he is just a blessing to me and I know to you all as well. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 and verses 10 through the end of the, uh, the, end of the book. Philippians 4, beginning in chapter 10 or excuse me, beginning in chapter 4, verse 10. And I'll read down through the end of the chapter. This is Paul, and he's speaking to the Christians in Philippi, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us your word and in it You tell us about who you are, you tell us about all that you have done in creating this world, all that you've done in pursuing your people, all that you've done in redeeming your people through the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we meditate on his grace and mercy to us in the gospel today, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we would not only see Jesus, but Father, that we would grow in our understanding of his love for us of your love for us, and that as we meditate on your grace and your love and your mercy to us, your faithfulness to your promises, that you would help us to learn what true contentment 
is like in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's probably not very often that you hear a quote from Madonna in a sermon. And in general, that's a very good thing. But I have a good one for us today. It's one where she was being very honest and transparent. And it also is very sad as we think about what she's really saying. It was an interview that she gave a long time ago in the magazine Vogue. And this is what she said. I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I've pushed past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think that I am mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. That's always been pushing me. Because even though I've been somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Now that's an honest and transparent statement for somebody who struggles to know and to experience contentment. Someone who doesn't fully understand what true contentment is, and I wonder, can we relate? And of course the answer is, yes, we can relate because we all struggle with being content, with having a life that's characterized by contentment. We can see the lack of contentment in our own lives as we reflect on the kinds of things that we typically struggle with. Restlessness. Always needing to have something to do. Finding it very hard to just be. Jumping from one activity to another to stay busy. Being more comfortable in life with drama than in life that's at peace. Boredom. Never being satisfied in our vocations. Never being satisfied with our spouses. Constantly critical. Doubting God's promise that he will always provide for us. Doubting God's promise to never leave us or forsake us. Doubting God's word that says that we are fully and forever accepted by him because of Jesus Christ. We're people that struggle with discontent hearts. Contentment is something that is pretty much a struggle for everyone to some degree or another. Some of us go through seasons of being discontent. Some of us spend most of our lives in a state of discontentment. Some of us have never experienced what the Bible calls true and genuine contentment. And yet, biblical contentment is something that all of God's people are meant to pursue with intentionality and purpose. In fact, as we're going to see in just a moment, it's something that all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ must pursue. And so the question for all of us is, are we? Are we on a daily basis, on our daily list of things to do, does it say, pursuing contentment with intentionality? 
Paul understood the struggle of finding contentment as well. He, he talked about it in several of his letters that he wrote, including the one that we're looking at this morning, the letter that he wrote to the Christians in the city of Philippi in the first century. So let's take just a few moments and look and see what he says. I want us to see three things from the verses that we read today. First of all, what is contentment? What is contentment? As Paul gives it to us from this portion of God's word. Secondly, why do we need it? Why do we need it? And then lastly, how do we get it? What is contentment? Why we need it? And how do we get it? So first of all, what is contentment? Now, it's not really easily, easily to, uh, easy to define contentment. It's, it's probably a lot easier for us to define or to uh, think about, uh, to see and to know what discontentment is. It's restlessness. It is, it is an unhappiness with the circumstances of our life. But the problem is that contentment is not just the opposite of that. Contentment is not just being happy. It's not just being okay with the circumstances that, uh, that we find ourselves in in life. There's, there's more to biblical contentment than that. So what does Paul tell us about it here in the passage? Well, first of all, look at verses 11 and 12. He says it's something that's learned. Not that I am speaking of being in need, Paul says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment, biblical contentment, Paul said, is something that is learned. And that word that he uses there in the Greek means to gain a knowledge or a skill by instruction. It means to, to come to realize something through experience, through practice. So what Paul is telling us here is that contentment is something that we must learn. It's something that we must take time to learn. It's something that we must practice. It's something that we must experience. It's a process. It it takes time. It's not like it's a switch that we just flip on or off. It's a process of learning over a period of time. Contentment used to be, in our culture in other cultures as well. It used to be a virtue. Contentment used to be something that we valued enough, that we thought worthy enough to spend time pursuing and trying to learn. But that's not so much the case anymore today. A pastor friend of mine used an illustration to try to get at that reality. We, we probably all know what synchronized swimming is. Uh, synchronized swimming, it's it's an event where there's, it's usually women, I don't know that I've ever seen men doing it, but perhaps they do, uh, but it's, it's usually a, a two women or a group of women, maybe 10 or 20 or even 50, uh, they're all in matching swimsuits and headgear, and they are uh, swim dancing in the water, uh, both above the water and below the water, and they are in perfect sync with one another, synchronized swimming. But did you know that there was something called solo synchronized swimming? Now, let me let that sink in just for a second. Solo synchronized swimming. Not two women, not 10, not 20, not 50, just one in the water. It was actually a sport in the Olympics from 1984 to 1992. 
You won't find it today because it eventually was dropped. It had earned very little respect in the Olympic community, and it was widely derided and ridiculed. And my friend's point in pointing this out was that today, the value that we place on deliberately pursuing contentment has about as much appeal as trying out for the Olympic solo synchronized swim team. Just like the Olympic solo synchronized swimming competition, taking the time that's needed to learn contentment earns very little respect in our culture today. It's often derided and ridiculed. It's, it's pointed at as being weak, a failure to excel, settling for mediocrity. But Paul says here that it's something that is to be learned. It is something that is valuable for us to take time and energy and focus and go through the experience and the process of learning contentment. But it's not just something that's learned. Notice what also Paul says in verse 12 about it. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret. Biblical contentment is a secret. Now, I think what he means here is that it's not something that's intuitive. It's, it's not something that is seen widely in our culture, in our communities. It's not something that is common. And it's not just something that you can conjure up within yourself. We'll see that in just a second. It's something that we have to learn. It's something that we have to come to understand what it looks like and what it feels like. It's a secret, Paul says. So what does it look and feel like? Well, he goes on to tell us what it looks and feels like. In fact, the the word that he uses there at the end of verse 11 when he says content, it's a Greek word that has the sense of a sufficient peace, of a strength, even of rest. That's what he means when he says contentment. But, but it's a peace, it's a strength, it's a, it's a rest that doesn't come from within us. It doesn't come from inside of us. Look at what Paul says in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. After he's talking about this, this contentment that he is learning and the, the secret of contentment, he says, I can, I can do it, I can do it, but not as I conjured up from within myself, but it's only as I am resting in Christ who does it through me. He's speaking about Jesus, the peace and the strength and the rest that comes to us through Jesus. In fact, the word here that he uses, strengthens, that, that strengthens me is the Greek word dunamis that we get our English word dynamite from. It, it's power that through Jesus and Jesus' working in us, there is an explosive power that strengthens us and enables us to learn contentment. And Paul said something similar in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthian people. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, here's the interesting thing about that verse. That word sufficiency is the exact same word that he uses for contentment. Let me read it again and change the words. 
God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all contentment in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. It is God's grace that works contentment into you. Now we're starting to get a picture of what true biblical contentment is. It is God working in us His abounding and powerful grace so that in all things and at all times we might have peace and strength and even be at rest. Why? Because there's a confidence that God will provide whatever we need in life. I don't know if you're familiar with the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote a little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you have not read that book, I would highly commend it to you. Burroughs, in his book, says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. We're starting to see what biblical contentment is. It is learned, it is, it is a secret. It's not something that we see widely in our culture. It is a sufficient peace and strength and rest that God works in us. But notice one other thing that Paul says here about what contentment is in verses, at the end of verse 11 and in verse 12. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Contentment is not circumstantial. Paul said that he learned to be content no matter what situation he was in. In any situation and in every circumstance of life, whether in a low, difficult, discouraging circumstance or whether in a high, delightful and encouraging circumstance, whether he was hungry and thirsty or had an abundance of supplies, Paul said he was content. And for Paul to say that the circumstances of his life didn't change his contentment is saying something. When he wrote these words, he was in prison for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 11 a little bit about the circumstances of his life. Five times he received 39 lashings. Now, why 39? Because in that culture, 40 lashings was considered the point at which somebody would die. Five times he was brought to the very door of death. Three times he was shipwrecked. He spent a night and a day adrift at sea. He was in danger, he said, from rivers, from robbers, from his own people, the Jews, from the Gentiles, from false brothers. He was in danger when he was in the city. He was in danger in the wilderness. He was in danger at sea. He said he spent many sleepless nights. There were days when he lacked food and drink. He was exposed to cold weather and always dealt with anxious thoughts and concerns for the churches that he had started and that he was helping. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells us that the Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh and he called it a messenger of Satan to harass him. And to keep him humble. 
Those were the circumstances of Paul's life. And he says that no matter the circumstances, he pursued learning contentment. And so as I ask myself, I also ask you, how about us? How, how much easier are the circumstances of our life than the Apostle Paul? Are you seeking to learn and pursue contentment? Not too long ago, I had the wonderful privilege of visiting one of the Lord's 92-year-old saints recently. It's the father of one of our members of our church. And I sat and I talked with this godly, humble man who just exuded peace. He was a picture to me of what biblical contentment looks like. He was 92 years old. He was dealing with all the inevitable health challenges that you have when you're 92 years of age. Had gone through a number of falls and hospital stays. And his wife of 72 years is dealing with significant dementia. Doesn't even really know who he is and spends most of her days asleep in her bed. The circumstances of this dear man's life are far from easy. In so many ways... This man showed me what biblical contentment really looked like. A peace. A peace that you could just see on his face. Patiently waiting for the Lord to take both himself and his wife home to be with him. A strength of character. And a rest. A rest in the Lord's plan and provision for he and his wife. Now... I think it's safe to say that most of us probably don't know contentment like that dear man knows contentment. I know that I don't. Especially when the circumstances of life get difficult. And and at that point as as we see what real contentment looks like and we see how far away we are from it so often, it would be easy, it would be tempting to us to say that learning contentment in this fallen world with the difficult circumstances that we have in life is just too hard. I, I can't or, or I won't do the hard work of going through the process of trying to learn contentment. I'm just going to be content to be discontent in life. But then we come face to face with what the Bible tells us about why we need contentment. Paul wrote a letter to a young pastor named Timothy. He actually wrote two letters, but in his first letter, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul makes this connection between godliness and contentment. They're connected to one another in some way. They, they go together. And we remember the, the author to Hebrews in chapter 12 when he says that holiness or, or godliness, that without holiness or godliness, no one will see the Lord. There are plenty of other places in Scripture that also talk about contentment as a virtue or as a fruit that should be exhibited by all who call themselves Christians. So here's the rub. Learning biblical contentment, no matter what the circumstances of life might be, is not an option for God's people. 
If you are one who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been united together with Christ through faith, then we are called to spend our lives, like Paul, learning contentment. So that makes us ask the question, well, how do we get it? If it's something that, I, that I'm called to, to spend my life learning and trying to understand and trying to exhibit in my life, how do I get it? I think Paul gives us a couple answers to that question here in our passage. It's interesting that as we have these verses in verses 10 through 13 that Paul's really talking about contentment. It's interesting that the very next verse in verse 14, which is connected to these verses because he says, yet... He's not bringing a whole different thought here. He's, he's continuing his thought. And notice what he says in verses 14 through 20. Yet it was kind of you, speaking to the Philippians, to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in, my, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's one of the ways that we get contentment. It's by being genuinely interested in others and the needs of others and then giving generously to them. Now, the context of what Paul is saying here, if you're not familiar with uh, his relationship with the Philippians, uh, when Paul was writing this letter, it had been about 10 years since the church in Philippi had been planted. The Philippian Christians had always been very kind and gracious and generous to Paul. Even after he left and he, he went to go do other things, they would regularly send him gifts, as he's referencing here in verses 15 and 16. But at some point, the correspondence between the Philippian believers and Paul had dropped off. Paul had not let them know, apparently, or they hadn't heard about any needs that he had, and so they hadn't been engaging with him. They hadn't been sending him anything recently. But then we see in verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. Now they had found out about an opportunity that Paul had, a need that Paul had, and they had, as they had done in the past, they, had, they sent him some gifts, some things that he needed. They were generously giving him gifts through Epaphroditus. This is one of the ways that the Lord helps us to learn contentment by being genuinely interested in the well-being of other people and then being generous with our time and our treasures and our talents toward those who are in need around us. There's something about living that way by, by thinking and having our radar up and, and looking for people who are in need around us, whether it's in our church family or in our community or wherever it might be, and then moving toward them with generosity, there's something about living that way that God uses to work contentment into our hearts and our minds. And then notice, when we live like that, look at what he says in verse 18, the end of verse 18, when we live like that, it's a fragrant offering. 
It's a sacrifice that's acceptable and that is pleasing to God. When, when we live that way, not only does it help to teach us contentment, but God receives it as a pleasing gift to him. Or as Paul says in verse 20, it is through our generous giving that we give glory to God. And that's the most important thing, that he would receive all the glory. There's another way that we can learn contentment according to what Paul's saying here in in these verses, being genuinely interested in the well-being of others and, and then being generous to them. And before we move on to that second thing, how are you doing with that? Are you, are you genuinely, are you intentionally living life by thinking about the well-being of others and then being generous toward them? But, but there's the second thing here that I would say is an even more important and more powerful way that we can learn contentment. It's not just giving generously, but it's receiving abundantly. Notice the, fo- the focus of Paul throughout this entire section of Scripture. Verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Speaking about Jesus. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, he says. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And again in verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. We also think of the well-known verse that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, the ultimate way that we learn and that we get contentment is by looking to Jesus Christ, by being in Christ Jesus. It is through Jesus Christ the more that we meditate and we seek to understand the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ, His his life of perfect love and obedience to His Father, His offering of His life on the cross to pay our debt that we could never pay on our own, His giving of His righteousness, crediting it to our accounts, adopting us into the family of God, His loving, persevering, always faithful grace to us. The the more that we meditate on that, the more that we will start to learn what true contentment really is. Because the Bible tells us that when we are in Christ Jesus, we can never again be completely separated from Him. When, When we are in Christ Jesus, we will never be left or forsaken by the Lord. The work that He begins in us, He will always and necessarily bring to completion. That there's nothing that we can do to make the Lord love us more or less than he does at this very moment because he loves us perfectly in Christ Jesus. We are forever adopted into the family of God and we can never be forsaken. When those truths get more and more into our hearts and our minds as we meditate on the reality of the grace of God's gospel to us, the more that we think about them and believe them, then a sufficient Peace and and strength and rest fills our lives. We start to experience what true biblical contentment is. Even, Even in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances in life. Why? Because we look at our lives, we look at the circumstances of our lives through the lens of God's love to us in the gospel. I have an acquaintance who is a pastor 
Before he was a pastor, he was an army ranger in the U.S. military. He tells the story of when he went to go see the movie Saving Private Ryan in the movie theater when it first came out in 1998. Now, quick disclaimer, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, it is a very gory, uh, violent movie, and I can't commend it to everybody. But my friend acquaintance went to go see it as a former army ranger. The movie follows a group of army rangers who landed on Omaha Beach on D-Day during World War II. Supposedly, it's a very realistic account of what those first moments coming on the beach were like. Now, in the movie, after this ranger company had helped to take the beach, they're given a very specific mission. Their mission is to go deep into enemy, enemy territory to locate a young soldier named Private Ryan. Their job was to secure Private Ryan, to protect him, and to bring him back. He was going home. He was going home because during the incursion, all three of his brothers had been killed. His mother was going to get the notice about all three at the same time, and the U.S. government decided they were going to send Private Ryan home to be with her. As this ranger group went on their mission to find Private Ryan, they encountered battle after battle after battle, and many in their own ranks were killed. Eventually, they found Private Ryan, and they gave him the horrible news of what had happened. They, they told him that he was going to be coming with them because he was going home, and he refused to leave. He said, if, all of my, if what you're saying is true and all of my biological brothers are dead, then these soldiers that I'm with are the only brothers that I have left and I will not leave them. Adamantly refusing to leave his post, especially because they were guarding a very important bridge and they were expecting an attack on that bridge very soon. Well, the rangers had to decide what they were going to do. They decided that the only way that they could accomplish their mission was to stay and to fight with Ryan and the rest of the soldiers in order to protect him, to make sure that he survived the upcoming battle so that he could get home to be with his mother. And so the rangers stayed, stayed with Ryan and the company of soldiers and prepared for the coming battle. The battle was horrific. It was gory. It was terrible. And almost everybody died except for Private Ryan. Now, my ranger acquaintance uh, said that up until that point in the movie, he, he was very proud at how the rangers had been depicted, uh, but that changed as the movie came to a conclusion. At the end of the battle, the captain of the ranger squad is lying in the street, mortally wounded. He's about to die. And he calls Private Ryan over to himself, and he whispered something into his ear. He whispered the words, earn this. Earn this. Spend the rest of your life trying to earn what's been done for you today. Earn the lives that have been given for you. At the end of the movie, we see an elderly Private Ryan standing over the grave of that ranger captain. And Ryan is weeping, sobbing, wondering 
Had he done enough to earn it? Had he been a good enough person? Had he done enough good things? Done enough good works? And he wept at the thought that he hadn't. My acquaintance says that's what ruined the movie for him. Because as some of you may know, for hundreds of years, the motto of the U.S. Army Rangers has not been earn this, but sua sponte. It's a Latin phrase that means of my own accord. Voluntarily. I choose this. Not earn this. I choose this. And my acquaintance says that that's what the ranger captain should have whispered into Ryan's ear. I choose to give my life so that you can live. There's nothing for you to earn here. I freely give my life in place of yours. And brothers and sisters in Christ, when we look at Jesus on the cross and we see Jesus hanging there, we will never hear him say to us, earn this. I've given everything for you. I've laid down my life for you. Now live your life trying to earn what I have done for you. Jesus will never say that to us. What he says to us is sua sponte. I choose this. I choose to give my life so that you can have eternal life. I choose to have the judgment and wrath of God come down on me so that you will never have to experience it. I willingly die on this cross so that you will have all of your sins paid for in full and be credited with my righteousness perfectly and forever. There is nothing left for you to pay. You can't do anything to earn it. Just accept it by faith. By faith in me, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see that kind of love that Jesus has for us, the the more that that reality of that love gets into our hearts and our minds, the more that we'll start to learn and experience what true biblical contentment is. As we look through our Savior's redemptive love for us, no matter what circumstances we face in this life. Let's pray together. Father, it's so easy to be characterized by a discontent heart. It's so easy to slip into discontentment. And many times over very little things. And Father, we don't know what's coming in this week ahead of us. Perhaps there will be things that will bring us discouragement and we'll be tempted to be discontent again. And Father, whether that's our just usual bent or whether we have things in life, circumstances in life that push us to discontentment, I pray that in those moments that you would, through the work of your Holy Spirit, bring the words of the Apostle Paul back to our eyes, back to our hearts, back to our minds. Bring us back to the reality of your grace and its breadth and depth for us. Bring us back to the gospel of good news, a Savior who willingly gave his life for us. Bring us back to these truths of your word and so work in us not only a motivation to be content, 
but the contentment itself. This we ask because we ask it in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.